Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Acts chapter 19, and it's in your bulletin. I invite you to read along with me silently. It is a longer scripture reading. About that time, no little disturbance broke out concerning the way. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the artisans. These he gathered together with the workers of the same trade and said, Men, you know that we get our wealth from this business. You also see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost the whole of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and drawn away a considerable number of people by saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be scorned, and she will be deprived of her majesty that brought all Asia and the world to worship her. When they heard this, they were enraged and shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was filled with the confusion, and people rushed together to the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's travel companions. Paul wished to go into the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some officials of the province of Asia, who were friendly to him, sent him a message urging him not to venture into the theater. Meanwhile, some were shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd gave instructions to Alexander, whom the Jews had pushed forward, and Alexander motioned for silence and tried to make a defense before the people, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours all of them shouted in unison, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Citizens of Ephesus, who is there that doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis? and of the statue that fell from heaven. Since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. You have brought these men here who are neither temple robbers nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the artisans with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges there against one another. If there's anything further you want to know, it must be settled in the regular assembly, for we are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he said this, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of God for the people of God. I'm thankful this morning for beautiful music, for our choirs, for Bonnie, and for... David uh, being back. Did you see David Kenraid right there? Um, I'm thankful for them today for leading us in worship. I'm thankful for Connor for reading that scripture for us today. I know what many of you are thinking probably right now. Thank God he didn't read that passage from last week. That was a doozy. Ananias and Sapphira, we won't do that again. Don't worry. Uh, I too go to God with thanksgiving this morning, although today does present its own challenges. We are in the midst, if you haven't been here, of a stewardship series titled With Open Hands. And we've spent the first two weeks in chapters four and five of Acts. But this week we're going to skip a little bit ahead. Saul is now called Paul. He and Barnabas, who were such a good team, have broken up. And Paul is traveling everywhere, challenging the status quo, constantly getting arrested, always on a journey somewhere. Now, Luke 
the writer of Acts has this habit of creating a narrative around a journey. Ten chapters in his gospel take place on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. And likewise, a good portion of Acts is written of Paul's final journey to Rome. And that's actually the first name of this movement, the way or the journey. It comes from the Greek word hodos, meaning road or street, path, route. And Acts is centered around this way, this journey. And the main journeyer in Acts is Paul. And man, does Paul love a good journey. (laughs) If you need any evidence, Acts chapter 18, Paul sails from Corinth for Syria to Ephesus, to Caesarea, to Antioch, from Antioch to Phrygia and Galatia. And then Paul comes back to Ephesus. He's constantly on a journey. And the journey the way is not always easy. So Paul, where we are in Acts, Paul returns to Ephesus. He deals with a little theological dispute about baptism. And then he decides, I like it here. This place is great. He sets up shop for a few years. And he takes over one of the teaching halls. There were teaching halls in various cities. And he took uh, over one of the teaching halls of a man named Tyrannus. Which is not a name people name their kids anymore. <laughs> right up there with Judas. So while, while in Ephesus, while Paul has hung up his hiking boots and is taking a break from his journey, we learn that Paul may or may not be behind a movement leading witches and warlocks to burn their books of spells and incantations. So sorry, Harry Potter fans. Uh, This is a book burning, and it's huge. And they burn uh, witch books that toll toll in the amount of 50,000 silver pieces, and that's in the millions of dollars. So Paul may or may not have been behind something like that. And here we see an instance. It's an instance of a group of people willingly sacrificing items that cost them money and resources and probably a little of their livelihood. And just as Paul is about to get back on his way, he's about to leave again, On his journey, we learn that there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. In other words, if if a willful, massive, magical book burning wasn't enough, here comes something that really rocked the boat. And do you know, by the way, the standard for what rocks a boat in the first century? It has to get Rome's attention. Rome is obsessed with order. And so if there's anything that threatens that, you've got their attention. And they'll end it pretty fast. Now... The issue that caused such disorder appears to have to do with one thing. What is it? Money. I don't know if anybody said that. I was trying. Um, It has to do with money. A man named Demetrius is apparently losing money. Warren Buffett rules on investing. He says the first rule is don't lose money. And the second rule is don't forget the first rule. And that's all the rules. (laughs) Don't lose money. Luke tells us that Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of the temple of Artemis. He's got his feathers ruffled. He's losing money, and Paul might be to blame. Now, if you don't remember, the temple of Artemis was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Can you name, can you name all seven? Great Pyramid of Giza, Lighthouse of Alexandria, Mausoleum of Halicarnassus, Colossus of Rhodes, Statue of Zeus at Olympia, Hanging Gardens of Babylon, and the Temple of of Artemis. I can't believe you couldn't name all those. (laughs) I've got them right here. Um, Her temple was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens and now in Nashville, and it sat one and a half miles north of the city. 
And people traveled from all over the known world to visit and to see and to pay their respects to Artemis. And don't forget to buy lots of souvenirs. (laughs) Times haven't changed at all. A lot of workers in Ephesus made and sold these many shrines and figurines of the temple and of Artemis, and they were sold on the main stretch of the road from the harbor to the town. And Demetrius, his business was dependent upon the temple. His livelihood, his family, his children, they all depended on the success of this state religious icon. And unfortunately, the trust in the temple was already a little bit shaky. About 10 years prior, there was a little bit of a scandal involving some of the sacred offerings in the temple treasury. They'd made their way into some other hands. Not everybody was a fan of that. And so I'm sure Demetrius, he's already on edge. He doesn't trust it. And now you have these evangelical monotheists coming into town, spreading like wildfire, and they're preaching against the state religions, against the temple of Artemis, the very thing that's keeping a man like Demetrius and his family afloat. They rely on the status quo remaining the same. And Demetrius is nervous. And so he gathers his fellow tradesmen, the other silversmiths and craftsmen in business and with the state religious cult. He gets everybody together at the Leaf and Bean in Ephesus and he says, men, you well know that we have a good thing going here. And you've seen how Paul has just kind of barged in and he's discredited what we're doing by telling people that there's no such thing as a God made with hands. A lot of people, he says, are going along with it. Not only here, but but all over. And by the way, not only is our business in danger, but so is the temple of Artemis. Her reputation is on the line. (laughs) Demetrius has identified the problem, but he has a solution. The problem, we're losing money, and it doesn't look good in the future either. But the solution is we've got to find a way to do away with Paul. And so a fire is lit, and the people are riled up, And nothing gets people more riled up than thinking that they have identified a solution to a problem that's affecting their bank accounts. The crowd grows. And they head to the local theater and start yelling and chanting, great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. The city's filled with riotous confusion and people grab two of Paul's buddies and they bring them to the theater. And of course, Paul wants to go because he loves a good fight. But the disciples, they, they keep him back. Even some of the Roman officials say, don't, don't go. You're going to make it worse. Please stop. <laughs> and then verse 32, I love, I love verse 32. This is how Luke tells the story. Meanwhile, some were shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. <laughs> the message translates it this way. Some were yelling one thing, some another. Most of them had no idea what was going on or why they were there. Is that verse written in the first century or recently? Um, later on, the local, officials, the local official comes to the theater and he offers a speech that reminds everybody, don't, don't worry. If you have a problem, that's what the courts are for. And, and nobody can take away from the temple of Artemis. She'll always be there. By the way, I've seen the temple of Artemis and it's a column standing in a field, so I don't think it made it very far uh, in history. But... All of this, all of this discussion, the concern about the economic impact of a new religious movement, the riot about nothing in particular, the theater filled with angry folks in a state of confusion that don't know what the real fight is about, all of it occurs because a man on a journey named Paul 
in a movement called the way, they begin to f- affect the economy and it starts costing people. <laughs> of course, it's nobody's fault. Bishop Will Williman says that the economic and religious and daily life are all so wrapped up with one another. Artemis, the bountiful earth mother, was a goddess of banking and protector of debtors, and thus her worship was a syncretism of idolatrous religious devotion and economic interest. They're wrapped up together. So, of course, a shift in religious devotion is going to change the tides. But thankfully, now we've done a really good job of separating church and state. We've done a really good job. Our economics and our religion don't really have to mingle much these days. That was a close one. The journey that we're on as followers of the way doesn't cost us so much anymore. But I do wonder that if the way of Jesus doesn't cost us anything, maybe we're going the wrong way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. In other words, following Jesus should cost us everything. He would know Bonhoeffer was a German theologian who decided to return home at the height of Hitler's rise. He joined efforts to try and eliminate Hitler and to smuggle Jews out of Germany. And ultimately, he was imprisoned and killed for doing so. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It turns out, friends, that this journey we're on operates according to a different set of rules and a different economy than our culture might. It turns out that the way may cost us something. And what is the way? I'm glad you asked. A better question might be who? John 14, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come back and receive you to myself. You know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas quickly says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And do you remember what Jesus says? Thomas, (laughs) I'm the way. (laughs) The truth and the life. Jesus is the hodos, the way, the road, the street by which we travel. And the way may end up costing us. When John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, when he visited his congregations, he would question his pastors, his assistants, as to the progress in the faith. And he would often ask if Christianity had cost them anything yet. (laughs) If we are to be followers of the way, it's going to cost us something. It will be a threat to our economy, a threat to our desires, a threat to our lives as we know them. But perhaps... The more that this way, the more this journey costs us, the closer maybe we become to God and to one another. And perhaps we should be pursuing a life that costs us something. Pete Rollins, is a, he's a theologian from Northern Ireland. He's a philosopher and a writer. He tells a story. And if you've been around me for more than five minutes, I've probably told you this story before. But I love it. I love this story. He, he wrote a book a while back filled with parables that he made up. He just wrote these fictional parables, some modern day, some he wrote in the first century. Some have Jesus and the disciples in them. And he tells this fictionalized story that I think captures what we're talking about. Pete says, one day, a small group of disciples who had embraced the way 
of Jesus early in his ministry, they heard him preaching by the side of a dusty road. And as they crowded around, they heard Jesus say, the law requires that you carry a pack for one mile, but I say carry it freely for two. And the disciples were deeply impressed by these words. For at that time, a Roman soldier had the legal right to demand that a citizen carry his pack for a mile as a service to the empire. Now this teaching not only allowed the disciples to turn this oppressive law into an opportunity to to demonstrate kingdom values, but it also presented them with an opportunity to suffer in some small way for their faith. In other words, it was going to cost them something. Now as it was common for soldiers to evoke this law, the small band of believers soon developed a, a reputation for their actions. Roman soldiers would often hope that the citizens they asked to carry their packs would be among those specific disciples. And often a small bond of friendship would develop between the soldier and the follower of the way. Now, a year had passed and this custom had become so established in the group that it became a defining characteristic of their life together. The the leaders would frequently refer to the teaching of Jesus and emphasize the need to carry a pack of the Roman soldier for two miles as a sign of one's faith and commitment to God. And it just so happened that Jesus heard about this community's work. And on, this way to, on his way to Jerusalem, he took time to visit with them. And the leaders gathered everybody, all the members of their group, to hear what Jesus would say. And once everybody was gathered in the room there, Jesus addressed them. And Jesus said, dear brothers and sisters, you are faithful and honest, but I have come to you with a second message, for you failed to understand the first. Your law says that you must carry a pack for two miles. My law says carry it for three. Friends, there are no ways around it. The way of Jesus costs us. And it costs us more and more each day. Bonhoeffer calls it grace, but he calls it costly grace. It is costly, he says, because it costs us our lives but it is grace because it gives us the only true life. Eugene Peterson said, we Christians, we die twice. The first death is when we set out to follow Jesus. We deny ourselves and we take up our cross and follow him. And when we truly sit at the foot of the cross, At the foot of the sacrifice of the incarnate God on earth, our hearts understand that this way, this journey will cost us something, but the giving away, the sharing of all we have and of of all we are comes from a place of gratitude for what God has done for us, for what cost Jesus has taken upon himself. And we soon realize that we would forsake the whole world if we could but adequately thank God. It's true, following the way will cost you, but perhaps a life that doesn't cost something isn't quite worth living. But whatever were gains to me, dear friends, I now consider loss For the sake of Christ, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, 
for whose sake I have lost everything. And I'm thankful. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come expecting to meet you here. We come expecting to be filled so that when we go out into this world, we know our mission. And our mission is marked by the way. Show us the way, O God. And may we know that in the cost of following your Son, we only find a greater and more abundant life than we could ever imagine. So pull us into that way, God, the way of life shaped by your life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness and goodness and joy and love and gratitude. Be with us, send us out, God, knowing that whatever costs we bear, we are given so much more. In Jesus' name, amen.